Hey, welcome to the First Assembly podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message and find it helpful and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible or a device, will you open with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke's biography of Jesus, chapter five. If we've not yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name's Cody, and I have the immense privilege of being a part of the team here at First Assembly, and I'm just delighted that you're here with us this morning, whether in person or online. I also want to add this morning that I'm really grateful to the many of you who have reached out to our family, who have been praying for us over this last season on December 20th. My wife, Brianna, my daughter, Alethia, and I welcomed our son, Atticus Ignatius, into this cold world. And so we've been kicking off the holidays in style, which is feeling like they're not holidays at all because we've been sorting out what it's like to be four instead of three. But I'm delighted that we're here together as we sort of begin a new series this morning on prayer. So if you have it in front of you, Luke chapter 5, I'll start reading at verse 15. The word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. But he, that is Jesus, would withdraw to deserted places and pray. Notice here in Luke that in the midst of crowds, teachings, and miracles, Jesus, according to Luke's biography, would often withdraw That is, he would deliberately remove himself from the distractions and the noise and the bustle of ministry so that he could go to deserted places, quite literally into the wilderness places to pray. And the the verbs used by Luke here actually imply that this was a regular practice, a regular rhythm for Jesus. Jesus would often withdraw into the wilderness to pray. Turn over the page, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now, during those days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Jesus, again, retreats here in Luke chapter 6, but now out to the mountain to pray. This should remind us of Moses, who often went up to the mountain to receive revelation from God before descending to teach, lead, and shepherd the people of Israel. And notice here in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus spends the entire night in prayer to God. We shouldn't miss the significance of these verses. The Son of God, indwelt by Holy Spirit, in whom God's presence was palpable and powerful, he needed to spend the entire night in prayer to connect with God and to discern his will. Turn over a few pages, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when he, that is Jesus, was praying alone with only his disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Again, here Jesus is praying, and again, notice he's alone. It's fascinating that most of the stories in the Gospels that include prayer show Jesus deserting or moving away to be alone, retreating, not simply for introvert time, although I wish that were true, but retreating to pray for the sake of others, retreating to connect with the Father, to discern the will of the Father so that he might return empowered to do ministry. A few verses later, Luke chapter 9, verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the big three, if you will, and he went up to the mountain to pray. 
And while he was praying, while Jesus was in prayer, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Well, there are many details uh, we could highlight from Luke chapter 9 in the story we know as the transfiguration. I think we need to notice one thing in particular, that it's in prayer that Jesus experiences transformation. As Jesus is praying, he is transfigured before his disciples. As Jesus was on the mountain in prayer, that's when he experiences transformation. And these examples reveal, I think, a few important details from the opening chapters of Luke's gospel. First, Jesus regularly retreated in prayer. Are you with me? Often into the wilderness, according to the gospel authors. But second, Jesus retreated to connect with God. That is, in prayer, Jesus retreats to discern the mind and the heart and, yes, the will of God. But third, Jesus prayed, I might put it this way, to ensure that his priorities remain rightly ordered. In a busy world with a frenetic pace, with crowds pushing in on all sides, with the clamor of the noise of people claiming Jesus to be a particular messianic figure, Jesus retreats to ensure that he knows God's will in the midst of all the noise. But fourth, Jesus experienced transformation in and through prayer. Retreat connection, reordering, transformation, all of these examples to make one very simple point. Prayer was at the center of Jesus's life. Are you with me? The disciples, I think, were actually able to recognize that prayer was so central to Jesus, the way in which he was dependent upon prayer in the midst of the frenetic pace of human life. They could see that prayer was a center point for Jesus, and all of that leads to one final section of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, he was praying in a certain place, And after he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. See, the disciples recognizing that prayer was central in the life of Jesus, they come to Jesus and they say, listen, we see the central importance of prayer in your life, so we want you to teach us to pray. You know, fascinatingly, if you take up and read all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you would notice that this is the only time in any of the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to do anything. The one time, the one thing the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to do is to teach them how to pray. And all of this begs a very simple question this morning. If prayer was central to the life of Jesus, what about us? Does prayer play a central role in our lives? And I think if we're going to be brutally honest with one another, I think if we're going to follow the data, we might admit that the majority of us don't have a working definition of prayer, never mind a regular rhythm of prayer. And I want to be clear, there's no shame in that this morning. There's no shame in being brutally honest about our rhythms or our prayer lives, because in my experience, most of us would say that prayer feels boring. It often feels like a religious box that we have to check off, but we don't really know why. I think we try to make time for prayer. I mean, and then we pray. We, we sit down and we make time and we pray for everything imaginable. I mean, we pour out our hearts and our minds and our energy and we exhaust ourselves only to realize that we've been praying for two minutes. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. And then we have nothing left to say and so our mind wanders and we feel shame for our mind wandering and so we try to refocus, but then that feels really hard and we're already kind of tired and distracted and so eventually we just sort of give up and move on. Are you with me? 
All of this, I think, should come as no surprise to us because our day and age is arguably the most difficult time to pray in human history. Let me offer a few reasons that prayer is so challenging for us. First, if you're taking notes, we're constantly distracted by the endless amounts of information, digital media, and content that is readily available at our fingertips. Uh, For example, in 2022, the average adult spent 147 minutes a day on social media. That's two hours and 27 minutes, which means that the average adult spent the equivalent of 54,655 minutes of their year on social media. That's the equivalent of 37.3 days. 37.3 days that at least 50% of us in the room spent on social media this last year. These stats don't even include streaming, like Netflix or Amazon Prime or other streaming platforms. It doesn't include gaming or other digital avenues. You know, entire companies are dedicated to distracting human beings, making us addicted to products. They hack our brains. Why? Because attention, notice that word, attention, is the primary commodity of our culture. Attention is the product that companies will fight tooth and nail to win. Entire companies are hired to steal away human attention. Devices, digital media, screens of every kind, they monopolize on quick hits that keep us coming back for more. Put differently, these products work on a psychological and a biological level as companies try to steal our attention away, and part of that stealing is a kind of distracting. Distracting keeps us from focusing for any amount of time, which that makes prayer profoundly challenging. Our mind wanders, our attention wanes, our awareness flickers until eventually we reach for our phones and we turn to our preferred mind-numbing agents. Distraction plays a huge role in our inability to pray, but second, if you're taking notes, the vast majority of us in the Western church are just too comfortable to need prayer. With endless resources, comforts, and securities at our fingertips, we don't really need God and we don't really have time left over in our busy schedules for God. After all, with more money comes more activity, More activity means more busyness. More busyness means more distraction. And distraction means using the limited time we have for pleasures. And after all, prayer is not pleasurable. In other words, followers of Jesus in the West, they have such an overabundance that they simply have no need for God. There's no desperation. There's no give us this day our daily bread. So why pray? After all, money can do what prayer can do, only faster and easier. And yes, that's tongue-in-cheek. Third, if you're taking notes, in the face of the rising tide of secularism in the secular milieu that we live in, in the post-enlightenment historical moment, we end up feeling like prayer is pointless. Hear me, prayer feels a little bit like the activity of a bygone era, a remnant of the superstitions of a former age from which we have advanced, so we should probably just leave the primitive ways of talking to the sky behind us. In other words, we're at a crossroads in this historical moment where we're trapped in imminence. We're losing sense of any enchantment in the world. And so prayer feels like the activity of sending our shopping list out into the universe and hoping it comes back positive. But finally, I think there are theological reasons why so many of us don't pray. I think probably most people in the room at one point or another, you were told that prayer can't really achieve any real change in the world. You're simply called to pray, quote, because prayer changes you, but it doesn't change God. You know, theologically, I think we've been instructed while prayer is important, like you should pray, it can't affect any real transformation in the world because while God hears our prayers, he doesn't act in accordance with our prayers. 
In other words, I think we've been taught, or dare I say mistaught, and I think mistaught, that prayer is a mostly pointless activity which will have no bearing on God or the world. And so these are just four things, distraction, comfort, secularism, what I might call theological pointlessness. These are just a few reasons why so many of us find it so challenging to pray. And in some ways, I want to let us all off the hook this morning. I mean, prayer is hard, and there are a lot of factors working against us, so we don't really need to pray after all. And in other ways, I want to invite us this morning to see that prayer is a weak point for most of us in our discipleship to Jesus, even though, as we saw, prayer was central to the life of Jesus. And it seems to me that if we want to be faithful, heart-deep, whole-person disciples of Jesus, if we want to live the life that Jesus lived, then we must cultivate lives of prayer. I might go further and say we actually cannot live the life that Jesus lived or achieve the true prosperous life that Jesus has for us in this world without prayer. We need to learn the what and the how and the why of prayer to dedicate ourselves to becoming a people of prayer. And the best teacher that I know on prayer is Jesus. And so that's why we are launching this new series as we begin 2023 with a call to prayer called Teach Us to Pray. Over the course of the series, we're going to spend one week after another examining each of the petitions of what we know as the Lord's Prayer which is at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, we're going to follow Jesus, the model prayer, as we learn to pray his model prayer. And ultimately, the goal for the series is to learn to pray. Because while there may be so many factors at play in the world keeping us from prayer, if we genuinely want to become like Jesus, we must together curate robust lives of prayer. And so on the docket for this morning, as I take a few minutes to begin the series, I'm not actually going to teach on any of the Lord's Prayer yet. We're going to save that for the weeks to come. First, I want to back up a little bit and start with the what is prayer, when do we pray, and how do we pray? And we're going to do that by looking at Jesus' words leading into the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So if you still have a Bible open in front of you, turn it to Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading at verse 5. But first, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you come? Teacher, come. Make us all aware of your divine presence. Would you till the soil of our hearts? Would you stir our imaginations? Would you strengthen our weaknesses? And would you heal our pains? I pray this morning that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And together we all said... Amen, amen. So Matthew chapter six, I'll start reading at verse five. And when you pray, do not be like those who are play acting. For they love to pray while standing in the synagogues and on the corners of streets so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, Enter into your private room, and having closed the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who watches what is secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not babble repetitious phrases like the other nations do, who imagine that they will get a hearing because of the sheer amount of their talk. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, so when you pray... Pray like this. 
So first and foremost, in learning to pray together, in asking Jesus to teach us to pray, we should slow down and ask the question, what is prayer? I think a lot of times in churches, we take for granted that we're all on the same page about the words we use. Are you with me? So we usually need to back up and define the terms we're using. Most simply, prayer is something like lifting our hearts and our minds to God. In prayer, we start to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires and to love the things he loves and to will the things he wills. Dallas Willard once described prayer this way, prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Prayer can be audible, that is, we can pray with our words, but it can also be silent in contemplation as we sit in the presence of God. Prayer can be private, that is, alone in our rooms, as Jesus described here, but prayer is also public, that is, with others. Prayer can be liturgical, that is, written prayers, or it can be extemporaneous, which is just a fancy word for saying improvised off the top of your head. In the broadest sense, then, most simply, prayer is communicating with God, like that's what prayer is. Are you with me? Archbishop of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom, once described prayer this way. He said, there is nothing more worthwhile than to pray to God and to converse with him. For prayer unites us with God as his companions. As our bodily eyes are illuminated by seeing the light, so in, contem- so in contemplating God, our being or our soul is illuminated by him. Prayer is the light of our very being, giving us true knowledge of God. Theologian, pastor, and reformer John Calvin once said this about prayer, our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own need is a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. Or perhaps you love the words of Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who once said, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And so Jesus begins this section of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, when you pray or whenever you are praying, Jesus says, whenever you're communicating with the God of Israel, whether audibly or silently, privately or publicly, liturgically or extemporaneously, whenever you are praying, notice Jesus doesn't say that prayer is for the select. He does not say that prayer is for the elite or those who are gifted in prayer or members of our prayer team. The embedded assumption here by Jesus is that all of his followers will pray when you are praying, not if you are praying. When you pray. You see, Jesus' assumption here is embedded within his broader Jewish tradition. It was three times a day that the people of God would spend intentional time in prayer. They would confess the Shema, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. They would pray the 10 words, what we know as the 10 commandments. They would pray the Beracha or other liturgies, and they'd participate in various forms of intercession. You see, the people of Israel knew something that we all need to know, which is that their daily living and moving and breathing was completely dependent upon interaction and collaboration with God through prayer. And unsurprisingly, these customs were actually carried forth into the early church. If you take up and read the book book of Acts, you'll notice that the earliest followers of Jesus would pray without ceasing. Both individually and corporately, they would pray earnestly and with thanksgiving. They prayed everywhere. They would pray in homes and temples and streets. They prayed on ships and podunk towns in the middle of nowhere. In their prayers, they would praise Jesus and they would petition God for their needs. 
They would pray for healing and deliverance. They would pray for boldness to speak the word. They would pray for signs and wonders and miracles. They would pray for forgiveness. They would pray for the dead to be raised. They would pray for their persecutors. They would pray for guidance and wisdom in the conversion of other nations. They would pray for everything. You see, the earliest followers of Jesus would come before God with all of their prayers. And this is why Jesus is saying, when you pray, because the embedded assumption is that as the people of God, we are a praying people. Jesus then moves from the what of prayer to the how of prayer as he offers us two warnings for how we are not to pray. First, Jesus says we should not pray like the hypocrites. The hypocrites, these are those who pray for public spectacle, those who pray to be rewarded by other human beings, these are those who want to appear impressive or spiritual by the way they pray. The word used by Jesus in Greek is the word hypocrites, which does sound a lot like hypocrite in English, but it should probably be translated as play actors. Those who wear masks, who treat the world as their stage, who pray like they're praying to God, but really they're kind of faking it. To borrow words from the prophet Isaiah, these play actors are those who come near to God with their mouth. They honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. The play actors, these are those who use the world. They use the prayer gatherings as an opportunity to perform. It's their own little theater. They come to pray, but instead they fight tooth and nail to be the main actor on the cosmic stage. They want praise from others, while in reality, the theater of God, to quote Calvin, is in the hidden corners. And there seems to be, I think, a temptation for many of us when we come to pray that we produce. Are you with me? I think there's this temptation when we come to pray with other people that we produce these sort of long-winded, sort of theologically dense, lofty prayers. All of a sudden, we start praying with these and thous. Like, all of a sudden, we're using Shakespearean English instead of normal English, and we're not really speaking honestly anymore. We're just trying to produce a prayer that makes everybody around us think we're really spiritual. Anyone in the room ever felt this way? I think we feel the pressure to do it, but I think we're still, we put the pressure on others to pray in a particular kind of way. Instead of allowing people to speak from their heart, we create a culture within which we sort of pressure people to pray in really sort of sophisticated and lofty ways. I think we expect others, we, we feel sort of disappointed when we don't see others like shouting or screaming or jumping or getting worked up in prayer. Hans Seider Betts once put it this way, the performers do it in the final analysis because they love themselves. Prayer, supposedly the most intimate expression of love to God, has turned into the very opposite preoccupation with oneself. And so Jesus warns here his followers against being hypocrites. Don't be play actors in the way that you pray. And the reason why Jesus is concerned about play acting is because one of the core components for the way we are to pray is we're to pray honestly, in vulnerability, in bringing our entire selves to God. And so Jesus invites us, listen, drop the act. Not to shame us. Jesus is not interested in shaming. Instead, Jesus is saying, drop the ax so you can genuinely bring yourself to God in prayer. God wants our our raw and honest and unfiltered selves, leaving our masks at the door. No need for facades, no need for performance. Just come as you are to pray. As noted by Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser, we unconsciously nurse the idea that we can pray only when we're not distracted 
not angry, not emotionally or sexually preoccupied. We think God is like a parent who wants to see us only on our best behavior. So we go into God's presence only when we have nothing to hide, are joy-filled, and feel we can give proper attention to God in a reverent and loving way. Then he says this, because we don't understand prayer, we treat God as an authority figure or a visiting dignitary, as someone to whom we don't tell the real truth. We don't tell God what is really going on in our lives. We tell God what we think God wants to hear. Jesus, don't pray like play actors. You know, as I've been meditating on this idea of of sort of faking our spirituality in prayer, I've thought often about the way children pray. Have you ever heard a child pray before? It's often um, unfiltered. It's uh, vulnerable. It's kind of hilariously strange at times, the things their little minds want to pray for. And yet the reality is they just bring whatever they're thinking about or whatever they're feeling or whatever they're experiencing, that's what they pray about in the moment. Are you with me? And instead of praying like play actors, we need to learn to pray like children. I wonder in what ways are we play acting in our spirituality of prayer? In what ways are we praying for appearances? Because the reality is, is that in praying for the room, we're getting the reward of the room, but we're not getting anything from our Father who's in heaven. Because he really wants us as we are with our raw and honest and unfiltered speech, Jesus lovingly invites us to drop the act and learn to just pray honestly, to use our own words to pray to God. But second, Jesus says that we should not babble repetitious phrases thinking that we're going to be heard because of our many words. The word used here by Jesus is the word bataloigeo in Greek, and it's kind of a rare word. It's not used very often. It means something like to speak much or extensively with a possible added implication of meaninglessness or meaningless words or to utter senseless sounds or to speak indistinctly and incoherently, hence translating this as babbling repetitious phrases. You know, at the time of Jesus, the prayer practices of the surrounding nations were often denounced by the Judean people for their length and for their empty content. In other words here, Jesus is instructing his followers to sort of follow a distinctive style of prayer that's different from the other nations around them refraining from endlessly babbling words, thinking that God is going to hear you because of the length of your prayers or the loftiness of your words. And Jesus critiques, I think, this form of prayer because when we pray long-winded, endlessly babbling prayers, I think it shows that we have no idea who we're praying to. Here's what I mean by that. I think it demonstrates that we don't understand who the God of Israel really is. Because first, we fail to realize that the God of Israel cannot be manipulated. God can't be manipulated. He's not a puppet or a genie who's going to be directed if we say the right words or just in the right way. If we get the incantation right, then we can manipulate God to do what we want. The God of Israel cannot be manipulated. But second, and more importantly, the God of Israel doesn't need to be manipulated because he knows what his children need before they ask him. He doesn't need to be manipulated because he's a good father. Are you with me? He knows what we need, and he chooses to relate to us as father who knows our best. Um, there's a story in the Hebrew Bible. Maybe you remember it. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18, and it takes place at Mount Carmel between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Anyone remember this story? It's sort of a showdown on the mountain. 
In this moment in history, the Israelites are wavering in their loyalty to Yahweh. They're following the ways of this false god, Baal, and Elijah sees himself as this only remaining prophet. And so Elijah challenges these false prophets so that he can show both the falseness of Baal, but also show the people of Israel that Yahweh really is the true deliverer, so they will turn their hearts back to God again. And so both groups uh, in the showdown, they both take a bull, and they're going to place it on the altar. They're going to call out to their God, and the God that shoots down fire to burn up the offering is the true God. And so what happens is the prophets of Baal, they start shouting and screaming and jumping and cutting themselves, and Elijah drops some like really baller ancient Near Eastern cuts when he's like, oh, maybe he's on the toilet having a bowel movement. That's in the Hebrew Bible. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Or he's like, maybe he's sleeping. Call out a little louder. You know, it's, this is like ancient Near Eastern smack talk. And the prophets of Baal, they try and they try and they try to use many words and they try to really move Baal to listen to their prayers. Night and day, the narrative says, they try this until evening. Nothing happens. And then Elijah, on the other hand, builds an altar He counterintuitively pours water on the altar, not so good for fire. And then he prays these words, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today may it be acknowledged that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that by your word, I have done all these things. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me. So this people may acknowledge that you, Yahweh, are God and that you you yourself have turned their mind around. And instantly in the narrative, fire comes down and burns up the sacrifice. In that very moment, fire falls as God responds to Elijah's very simple prayer. Are you with me? Now follow me. I think many of us and most of us are tempted to pray like the prophets of Baal. We perform, we shout, we scream. We pray long-winded prayers with lofty words. We sort of do this contrition, like if we just get it right and we do the right things and we pray enough length, then God will really hear us. And that shows that we have no idea who we're praying to. We're praying to God like he's a false God. When in reality, the God of Israel need not be manipulated. He's not some sort of cosmic vending machine, dishing out favor to those who prove themselves most pious by praying, babbling on like windbags with all their spiritual speak. He can't be manipulated. He doesn't need to be manipulated because he's a good father and he knows what you need before you ask him. We don't pray like the prophets of Baal. We pray like children of our father who is in heaven. John Calvin once described prayer this way. When we come to pray with serious intention, the tongue does not outrun the heart. The tongue does not outrun the heart, nor is God's favor secured by an empty flow of words, but rather the longings which the devout heart sends out like arrow shots are those that reach to heaven. The tongue does not outrun the heart. I wonder for many of us in our spirituality or in our prayer lives, for how many of us is our tongue outrunning our heart? And in what ways do we need to allow our tongues and our hearts to become one again? You see, I think part of what Jesus is critiquing here, one of the reasons why you don't pray babbling on with repetitious phrases, trying to garner favor, is because the deepest forms of relational connection don't require speech at all. They just require presence. Think about any long-term relationship that you have in your life, whether it be a spouse or children or a best friend, that when you're with them, are you trying to impress them with your lofty speech? If you are, we have a prayer team. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Of course not. I don't sit around at home 
offering theological diatribes to my wife, trying to show how intelligent I am or something. Let me show you how many Greek words I can talk about in 10 minutes. It's a complete waste of time. Maybe early on in our relationships, we want to be impressive, yeah? We want to speak the right things and do the right things. And then over time, what we realize is that the greatest form of relational connection is silent presence, stability, support, love, and care. It does not have to be filled with words. Are you with me? And so Jesus is saying, listen, presence is going to outweigh your words. Acknowledgement will speak volumes and silence will heal. You need to pray this way because, listen, you don't need to fill all of the space by babbling on endlessly. Just be present before your Father and listen. Experience him, know him, cherish him. You know, if you take up and read the great spiritual mothers and fathers of church history, as you read them, you'll recognize that they all talk about the hours upon hours that they spent in silent contemplation with God, silently waiting, listening, reveling, delighting to know God, just to be in God's presence. Because genuine relationship requires presence. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be a play actor. But he also says, don't babble repetitious phrases thinking God needs to be manipulated. God loves you and he knows you. Just pray to him honestly. And all of these things were commissioned to earnestly ask and to seek out the mind of God and to not continuously, but we need to do it honestly, bringing the fullness of ourselves to God, not complicating things with endless talk, but simple speech and faithful presence. And so I want to offer a bit of a summary in this moment of where we've been so far, the what, the when, the why, and the how, if you're taking notes. Simply prayer, the what of prayer, prayer is a conversation with God. You can include Willard's line. It's a conversation about what we're doing together. I love that. When do we pray? Well, according to the life of Jesus, we pray as part of our regular rhythm. Or if you see the Apostle Paul, he'll often use idioms where he says, I've been praying for you night and day, and I don't think for Paul it's an exaggeration. I think he literally means he's been praying constantly. Why do we pray? We pray for relational connection with God, and we pray in community for relational connection through prayer with each other. And then the how of prayer is raw honesty, plain speech, and active presence. If you get one thing out of this morning is that you, can, you don't have to be performative in your prayers. You don't have to babble repetitious phrases. You can pray a really simple prayer. And we can learn to pray from the children in our midst. And these are the what and the when, the why and the how of prayer. But then Jesus follows this instruction with the primary example of prayer. What we know is the pater noster or the our father or the Lord's prayer. And as one of my professors used to say, here now Jesus, the model prayer, offers us his model prayer. Jesus, the model prayer, gives us a model prayer. And so in requesting that Jesus teach us to pray, he offers us one singular prayer. And since this is our primary example of prayer in any of the biographies of the life of Jesus, we need to learn to become a people who use and utilize the Lord's prayer in our prayer lives. Are you with me? Because it's the one prayer he gives us. But notice he doesn't say pray this prayer. Jesus says, and when you pray, pray like this. Pray in this way. In other words, I think Jesus is not giving us the exact prayer that we need to pray every day of our lives or in every moment, although praying the Lord's Prayer as it's written is a beautiful thing. I do it three times a day. But I think Jesus is offering us the format and the structure that our prayer should follow. Put differently, Jesus is kind of giving us a structural outline or a cheat sheet for prayer. 
It's really helpful. Jonathan Pennington puts it this way. The Lord's Prayer is the scaffolding around the tower of prayer or the guiding handrails along which the disciple walks in forming his or her own prayers. So as we walk through this series, as we unpack each of the petitions, what we're trying to do is we're trying to unpack the scaffolding of prayer or in Pennington's language, which I love, the handrails of prayer that are going to keep us moving forward as we learn from Jesus how to pray. And so as we make the turn this morning, we return to the question once more, if prayer was central to the life of Jesus, how could we as his followers follow in his footsteps without cultivating a life of prayer? The answer, we can't. In fact, I think it would be naive to think that we could live the life that Jesus lived without having a life of prayer. Are you with me? And so Jesus gives us the handrails, what we might call the content of our prayers. And I think we all need these handrails. Anyone remember when you were first learning to ride a bike? Anyone? Training wheels, anyone? It feels like a thing of, a, of, of the past now. Those kids have those little push bikes that they can ride on now where they kind of learn balance and stability a lot younger than I did. But I remember when I first started learning to ride a bike, training wheels on, because I didn't know how to ride a bike. And I needed the support and the guidance and the help to learn to ride. Now, eventually the training wheels come off. And the principles I learned with those training wheels on are the same principles I keep using once I've learned to ride the bike, but I don't necessarily need them anymore. This is a helpful analogy for the way that we think about the Lord's Prayer. This is the one prayer Jesus offers us to pray. These are the training wheels of prayer. And I don't think you'll ever get far beyond the training wheels of prayer. You'll always need the sort of structural outline of the Lord's Prayer, even if you're not using it verbatim anymore. Are you with me? And so that's part of what this series is about. We're convinced as a team that if we can expand our vision together for what this prayer is about, if we can expand our vision for how we pray together, then our lives not only of prayer will grow, but our lives in following Jesus will grow and be molded and shaped, and we will be transformed as Jesus was on the mountain in and through prayer. And so I return to my favorite quote on prayer this morning, the words of John Calvin, the tongue does not outrun the heart. And God's favor is not secured by an empty flow of words, but the longings which the devout hearts sends out are like arrow shots, are those that reach heaven. I come back to this quote this morning because part of starting here, before we dive into the Lord's Prayer, is to define prayer, yes, but also offer some warnings in relation to our prayers. Calvin's metaphor is strange, but I actually think it's really helpful. I think many of us are taught to pray like grenades. Grenades with loud voices, explosions, shooting shrapnel in every direction, just hoping that it hits something. And Calvin says prayer is more like a bow and arrow. It's simply drawing the bow, aiming at the target, and releasing the arrow. It doesn't have to be loud or explosive. It just needs to be precise in exactly what we're asking for. And I'm inclined to agree with Calvin as we learn to pray together over the course of these next few months, as we aim to grow in prayer. Prayer, according to Jesus, is a conversation with God, but it has to take the form of raw honesty and vulnerability with plain speech and remaining present. Because the gravitational pull of, of prayer is relationship. Relationship and union with God. And so as the band returns this morning, I want to introduce us to just one Latin phrase as we end our time. It wouldn't be a great sermon without getting you to learn a Latin phrase. Are you with me? 
And so this is the phrase. I want to teach it to you. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's this, lex orandi, lex credendi. Can we try that together? Lex orandi, lex credendi. Well done. You can drop that at your next party and lose some friends. Here's what it means. It means the law of prayer is the law of belief. The law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, what you pray reveals what you believe. The phrase was actually expanded in church history to be lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, which means the law of what is prayed is what is believed is the law of what is lived. This axiom is actually an adaptation of the words of Prosper of Aquiatane, a fifth century Christian writer who was contemporary with St. Augustine. The phrase actually runs through almost the entirety of church history. And here's basically what it means. What we pray is what we believe, and that ultimately determines what we live. What we pray is what we believe. One scholar puts it this way, simply, the church believes exactly as she prays. And so what do we pray? What are we praying? And so as we go through the series, the hope here is that as we cover each of the lines of the Lord's Prayer week by week, as we learn the content of prayer through the handrails or the training wheels of prayer, as we become these people of prayer, we would become people who pray what we believe to allow our prayers to shape the way that we live, that we would become a people marked by this kind of prayer, that we would pray like this. And so I want to invite us maybe at the beginning of this series, to commit together to praying the Lord's Prayer every day or potentially praying a version of the Lord's Prayer every day. But perhaps we can begin simply and say, let's start by committing to pray the Lord's Prayer together every day. Here's how you can do that. It's actually quite simple. Our phones, most of our phones at least, have an alarm system on them. You can create silent alarms. So they'll just flash up on your screen. They don't make any noise. And you can actually label your alarms on an iPhone. I don't know about Android, because I'm a Christian, but um, just guys. Sorry, I had to just throw that in there. Stay focused, stay focused. Um, you can label your alarm. So you can set an alarm and label it the Lord's Prayer. So I have alarms that come up on my phone. One of them uh, came up at 12.30. If I were to pick up my phone, there was an alarm that went off at 12.30 to pray the Lord's Prayer and to pray the double love command that Jesus offers, love God, love neighbor. I pray that every day. I pray these things three times a day. Now I'm inviting you to find a rhythm, but together that we would actually start to pray this prayer together because these are the handrails or the training wheels. And here's what I think is gonna happen. I think as we learn more and more about each of the petitions from this prayer over the coming weeks, as we dive deeper into them, as we explore the world of the words of the one prayer offered us by Jesus, our hope is that our prayers are going to grow and grow and grow as the law of what we pray is what we believe is what we live. As we pray these petitions, I think at at the beginning, we'll think we understand them. And what we'll realize is that the more we meditate on them, the more we realize the words are deeper and broader and more expansive than we had ever imagined. And then our prayers will also deepen and broaden into the heart of God. And so may we together allow prayer to become woven into the fabric of our everyday living and moving and breathing. May we enter into prayer, conversation with God that is honest and raw and vulnerable with plain speech remaining actively present. And may we learn together to utilize the one prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. And so as we end our time together this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me. And we are going to pray this one prayer together.
And so as our Savior has taught us together, we are bold to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing together. Well, thanks for listening. Our prayer is that this week's message has challenged you and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information about First Assembly and how to get connected at our church, please visit our website at fa.church. Thanks so much. We'll see you again next week.